Grab your Bibles, go to the book of Genesis, and I want to start with a question. What do you see when you look in the mirror? Your face. Your reflection. Imperfections, Jesus. Uh, how many of you see, don't raise your hands on any of these. How many of you see pimples? Or bad hair days? Or how many of you see reminders of birthdays that have come and gone? How many of you have seen reminders of nights that went really, really poorly? Or how many of you, when you look in the mirror, you see all the great reasons why people like you? There's a couple of you. Yeah, I know there are. There are. What is it that you see when you look in the mirror? And I have a mirror. I don't know if you've seen this or not, but I have a mirror that's a regular mirror. And then on the other side, as you turn it over, it's like that 6X or 8X mirror. And you get really, really close. So all of those blemishes that you thought you had, you could really confirm. You can zoom in to microscopic uh, sizes and really get every nook and cranny and every pore cleaned or whatever it is that you need to do. Um, what I often find, however, is, the mo- is that most people that I talk to, when you look in the mirror, if we asked you the question, do you like what you see or do you not like what you see? Most of us don't look in the mirror because we like what we see. And if you do, then there's a different sermon for that. But (laughs) if you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see, or you are concerned about what you see, or maybe even ashamed of what you see, or maybe even really upset and mad at what you see, And of course, now I'm not talking about just your physical appearance, but when you begin to reflect upon who you are and the kind of person that you've become and the kind of person that you are in the world, if we really take a hard look, do we like what we see or do we not like what we see? And it is my hope that by the end of this message, the outlook or the perspective that we see when we look in the mirror, when we reflect upon ourselves, will radically change. I am thrilled about this message, and hopefully it will be thrilling to you. Genesis chapter 1, go to verse 26. If you're in the Blue Bibles, it's on page 1. So that should hopefully be fairly simple. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, In our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27. So God created mankind in his image. Everybody say image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, the word for image there in that passage is this word right here. It's the word tselem. Everybody say tselem. Now, what is an image? What do you think of when you hear the word image? In a lot of art and a lot of depictions and a lot of our Christian understanding, the idea of image is a corresponding image. In fact, Michelangelo Sistine Chapel is actually comes from this idea that if you and I are created in the image of God, 
then what you see, what you physically see, what your characteristics can be replicated in what, who, what and who God is. It re- represents the idea that the things that we have correspond to the things that God has. It's not an exact copy, but it's a correspondence. And so uh, some theologies and some ideas and actually some um, variant religions in this world actually teach that God has a physical form that has, as a certain stature, has fingers and those different types of things. So you'll hear this frequently. But this is not just a Middle Ages text. This is an ancient text. In fact, one of the most ancient texts that we have in the scriptures. And if you were to ask the question, what does Selim mean to, the, to ancient people, to ancient Israelites or to ancient Canaanites, you would see things like this. You would see idols, statues, bronze, stones, sometimes carved out of wood. So the ancient peoples understood that the word selim, the word image, is actually a physical representation of the god or the goddess. It's not a correspondence. It's not like the god actually has this form or actually has legs or actually has this body. It is a representation. And so when the ancient Israelites the ancient Canaanites and the ancient peoples created images. They created them so that they could have something to look at, something to touch, something to feel, and it reminded them of something big. It reminded them of their God. It reminded of their, of their deity. That word, selim, comes from some root words that mean shadow, that mean carving or engraving, or even outline or silhouette. It's not the thing. It's not an exact correspondence, but it is a representation. It is something that is cut out. It's something that's an outline of. And in some ways, the statues themselves could correspond to that word salem. The statue is the image. So, when we think about God creating you and me in his image. According to this definition, according to this understanding, each and every one of us, each and every one of you, is a physical representation, is a shadow, maybe is a carving, is an outline of God. And just like the Canaanites were idol makers, they made idols, God is some way, and I know this is going to sound strange, God is some way also an idol maker, except his idols are not out of stone or wood. His idols are you and me. An idol not being a blasphemous thing. Idol just simply mean a thing that represents the God. Now, there's all sorts of fun stuff that you can do with this idea. What does it really mean to be in the image of God? What does it really mean to be God's representation here on earth? And I'm just going to leave this question to you for your time when you leave and for when you have conversations and when maybe you're in a small group. Wrestle with this. What does it mean to be the shadow of God? What does it mean to be God's outline? What does it mean to be God's carving? What does it mean to be God's graven image? What does it mean to be the physical representation of who God is? For now, I just want to simply say that you are created 
in the image and the likeness of God. And this is one of the most fundamental, central ideas in the entire scriptures. And also, the other people around you that you look at, that you see, that you run into, that you interact with on a regular basis, they too are also created in the image of God. And I know that's really hard to believe when you look at some people. This is one of the most central ideas in the entire scriptures, that you and I are physical representations of who God is. You are created in his image. You are created in his likeness. The fact that you exist, that you breathe, is a representation in some way, shape, or form of who God is. And this is why we love God. We love God because he is our creator, and we return to him the same love that he's given us. But this is also why we follow the golden rule. To love one another as we love ourselves. Because every single one of us is created in the image of God. Now, if you think about that for a second, and you take into the idea, ancient Canaanite cults and religions, all those other statues, the idea that the image or the idol or the thing that was created is a physical representation of the deity or of the God, and that you are them, it also follows too, believe it or not, that you are a sacred object. I mean, just like the physical representation is a sacred object that you venerate, that you hold dear, then each and every one of you are also sacred objects. And I read in one commentary that the idea of being created in the image of God to the ancient Israelites, as this idea was developing from Genesis, would then place into the religion of ancient Israel itself That if you were to desecrate or insult or not care about the brother or sister that you sit next to, that is a worse blasphemy and a worse sacrilege than defaming the temple or the Torah or the ark. Any other physical representation, any other sacred image or sacred idol. So let me ask you this question. If you are a sacred object... Let me ask again. What is it that you see when you look in the mirror? Do you see a sacred object? Do you see yourself as a sacred object? That's really, really hard. Do you see yourself as holy? Now, I love this image because this image indicates to us that we've got some bad news regarding this image. That even though you and I carry around the image of God and that you and I are physical representations of who God is, we know that every single one of us also mar that image. We desecrate it. We treat it horribly. We spoil it. We deface that image. This is Norman Rockwell's famous painting, uh, The Mirror. Are you familiar with this painting? Have you, you remember seeing this? Now, what's fascinating is Norman Rockwell painted his pictures from photographs that he actually took. Now, what's fascinating is you take a look at this photograph and you take a look at the painting that he did. Notice what he does with this, which is really, really fascinating. In the original image, there, is, there, there are no other objects that this girl is looking at. She's looking off to the side. She's just peering at herself in the mirror, and it looks like a mother or something is uh, behind doing dishes. But in this image, you start to see a little bit of a different demeanor. You see the doll, the plaything is set aside. And what do you see in her lap? A magazine. What do you see down on the floor? You see lipstick, a comb, a brush. And a lot of people, some commentaries um, 
Some uh, people who have been thinking about this art have suggested that what Norman Rockwell has done from this photo to this painting is suggest that here, it's just a girl looking into the mirror. But here, it's a girl now comparing herself to what she doesn't look like in the magazine. Comparing herself to what she doesn't look like. And so instead of looking into the mirror and seeing a sacred object, seeing something holy, seeing something wonderful, seeing something that's created in the image of God, each and every one of us have done something, said something, read something that makes us mar the very image. Now, there's something brilliant that happens in the book of Genesis regarding this image. The word image actually shows up five times in the book of Genesis. I want to share with you, um, those are the passages, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Let me turn real quickly to Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. And he says, when Adam had let, lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. There's that word again, Selim. And he named him Seth. And then in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, we see the word one more time in Genesis. This is after um, the, uh, Noah and his flood, and he tells Noah to be fruitful and to multiply again. And then he gives this command. He says, from each human being too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by human shall their blood be shed. For in the image, for in the tselem of God, God has made mankind. Now here, this word image shows up five times in these passages. And here's the relationship. The first time, it's that you and I are in the image of God. The second time it shows up is that the generations that follow somehow carry the image of the parents. And the third time it shows up is that how we treat and how we act in this world needs to be based and founded upon this idea that you and I are created in this image. In other words, how we view ourselves in view of how God has created us how we view ourselves and how our parent, parental as well as child relationships work, all of that should be the foundation and the basis and actually is the foundation and the basis for how we live and operate in this world. How you view God, how you sense who you are as God's image will greatly affect how you treat other people. How you view your relationship with your parents, subtly something within you will move you to Treat other people from a place of a perspective of that image. It seems to me that this story of Genesis is highlighting a deeply spiritual connection between these three. Between the image that you are created in God. The image that children or generations, because it's not just children, meaning the people that you've given birth to. But children, the generations that come from us, that come behind us, and the generations that have gone before us. And all of that affecting how we treat one another. And if this word image, tselem, is a representation, then there's probably something deeply profound about how we behave and how we act, which is a representation of how we actually see ourselves and how we, what it is that we believe about this God and what it is that he has created in us. Let me see if I can explain this a little bit better. 
Some people have actually called this the law of reflection. The law of reflection is a psychological term and a sociological term that a lot of people have been using to describe this phenomena. That how it is that you see yourself or how it is that you view your image is going to greatly affect how you live and you act and you behave. This is where it gets from preaching to meddling, or as some people have called it. Everything happens first inside of you, then corresponds to something that happens outside of you. In other words, how you experience the real world, how you perceive it, how you understand it, is filtered through, first of all, your thoughts and the emotions that you have that have been put within you. Second, nothing is achieved outside of you unless it is first created within. Another way of putting the law of reflection, your circumstances reflect your inner states and your frame of mind. This simply means that if you're in a circumstance or a situation right now and you're experiencing life, whether it's good or it's bad or it's challenging or it's difficult, that is most likely a reflection of your own frame of mind, your emotions, your, your perspectives, your beliefs, your outlook. Your outer world corresponds with your dominant thoughts and emotions. What it is that you believe what it is that you see, the things that you're convicted about, the values that you hold dear, your attitudes and your perspectives that you hold as true, those are things that are most likely going to change how it is that you view the world. Let me give you a couple examples. How many of you have ever said, I can't stand my parents because they do X? All of us have said that only to find out later on in life that you do the same thing. I remember years and years ago, I I grew up in a a home that had a little bit of anger, and I hated going home because there was anger at the home and some violence. Then later on in my life, when I was about 19, I was a camp counselor, and you're working with junior hires, and... And I was working with this one junior high. I was being so snotty. And I was very young. And I didn't know what I was doing. And I caught myself grabbing him and yelling at him. And he said, I'm going to sue you. And I was like, oh. <laughs> but I remember that moment. I remember that moment thinking to myself, the thing that I hate, the thing that I'm pointing to, the thing that bothers me, the thing that I see out in that world is actually in here. The thing that I'm so enthralled with getting rid of in you is actually something that's going on in here. Let's do some other examples. Judgments. How many of you have made judgments upon other people? Oh, the only reason why they're doing that is because of then fill in the blank. Well, the only reason why you're acting this way is because you're actually jealous of me. If you see that as the reason for other people's actions and behaviors, most likely that is because of a dark shadow side that you are actually jealous of them for something. If you think that other people are out to get you or out to rob you, then that's actually a reflection of a fear or an insecurity inside of you. How many of you know people that are legalistic? that have to follow all the rules, that have to have it this way. And religion and faith and journey with Jesus is all about 
you have to do it this way. And if you don't do it this way, then you, your, your value, your holiness is compromised. Is that really a reflection of theology? Is it really a reflection of God? Or is that a reflection of how somebody believes that God has treated them? Blame, guilt, and personal responsibility. Do you know people that walk around with a, I have to do this, I have to do this, and if I don't get this activity done, then all of a sudden there's this guilt upon me. Yeah, that's, a, that's not a reflection of how the world actually works. That's a reflection of deep inner security or brokenness or something going on in here. There's some other ways to think about this. What are the things that you admire? Um, I love watching soccer, the best sport in the entire world. Don't argue with me on this one. 100 million people watch the Super Bowl every year. 2 billion people watch soccer every day. 100 million Americans watch soccer. And of those 2 billion, it's like 50 Americans, right, uh, watch soccer every day. But I love soccer. I admire it. Why? Because years and years ago, and I forgot to get the article for you, um, I, got, I played soccer. It was something that was, something that was within me. That because I admire that, it's a reflection of something that's in me. What are the things that made, make you angry? I already mentioned to you my example of um, anger and violence and, and those different types of things. What are the things that make you angry? That there's probably something that's reflecting inside of here. And then one of my favorite phrases that helps. Do you live out of scarcity or do you live out of abundance? And what that means is this. When you're in any situation or circumstance, do you say, oh, I can't because I don't have this and this is missing and I don't. And no matter, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the situation, no matter how gen- generous people are with you, your constant, immediate first response is, yeah, but I can't because... Well, that's a reflection not of your reality. That's a reflection of something that's going on in here. It's a reflection of your attitude. It's a reflection of what's in your soul. Or do you live out of abundance? Do you live out of a place that says, yeah, God has been good. And you know these people. You know these people that live uh, in this world and they, they are in your communities where they have nothing. And they have everything. They live out of this place of such joy because they perceive themselves to be loved, to be cherished, to be cared for, and they live out of that place. And then you know those people that have everything and they have nothing because their constant place that they live out of, the reflection is, yeah, but it's just not good enough. It's never going to be enough. In other words, we have marred this image. Two real quick examples that emerged, and one of them's really vulnerable for me. And as a pastor, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to be brutally honest with you. And how this law of reflection works. And how the marred image reflects and affects how you and I live. One of the things, as a pastor, that I have hated for the longest time is Christian celebrity. The idea that you as a pastor or somebody who speaks for a living or somebody who sells books or has a TV show or a radio show, there's a celebrity that comes with that. And people love the person. And for me, my, my anger, my 
holy discontent, the thing that I'm so frustrated about is, hey, that's great. Praise God for the message that's going forth. But they're just a person. The message and who God is and who Jesus is that they're trying to share with you, that's what really should be the celebrity, but not the person. And for years, I've struggled and wrestled with, like, I can't, why can't we settle down with the Christian celebrity and not put people up on pedestals, okay? This is the thing that, I, that gets under my skin. Now, are you ready to see how this law of reflection works? Why is it that I hate this so much? To be absolutely vulnerably honest, it's because I'm not one. And I wish I was. And years ago, I started thinking about this. I was like, why does that bother me so much? You know why it bothers me? It's because I wish I was them. And as a pastor, and you know, you stand up in front of people and you share, and I love doing this. There's this subtle, gross, disgusting, creeping thing that says, you're not good enough unless you have this. And every single one of us struggle with that, and pastors struggle with this too. Oh. So in other words, I'm seeing myself as Somehow God has not put me into a place that I think I should be. And that's reflected in how I act and how I behave in my attitudes. Oh man, and what freedom and healing comes when you recognize that this is what's really going on in your life. Second example happened several times. So this is a conglomerate mix of several people that I've counseled over the years. I will often have people in my office talking about how they're running around like chickens with their heads cut off because they have to get this event done. They have to put everything to place. They have to make sure everything is set the way it goes. And other people, if I delegate that responsibility to somebody else, they're not going to do it right. It has to be this way. And you chalk it up a little bit to just, this is your personality. I happen to be type A. I'm a little anal retentive. So I'm going to act this way and I'm going to be this way and it's okay. And then all of a sudden you find yourself running around and trying to do things perfectly. And you got to get it done this way. You got to get it done that way. And then you're frazzled and you're tired and you're burnt. And I've sat down with people and asked the question, why? And slowly over time, as we work through this, it's not because it has to be that way. Frequently what I hear, and this goes back to my personal example, the person will tell me, if I don't do that, then I won't feel affirmed, loved, appreciated. I won't get the compliments that people usually say to me. Their frenetic activity is not living out of a place of abundance, of joy, of loving to do this. They're living out of a place of fear of rejection. They're living out of a place of the fear of of insecurity, that people are not going to love them and accept them the way that they are. They're a broken image. And each and every one of us are broken images as well. Adam and Eve have this whole idea. If you you read that story carefully, Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. This is after they ate. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And then God says to him, who told you that you were naked? 
Adam, you're living out of a place of a perspective that I never told you. This was not the image that I put inside of you. Yet, for some reason, because of the brokenness, we have taken on that to ourselves. This idea of reflection also shows up in Romans chapter 2, really quickly. Romans chapter 2, verse 1 through 8. Listen to this. Thinking about the image of God and thinking about the idea of the law of reflection. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point you judge others, you are condemning yourself. (laughs) Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Oh, it's in the book. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you as a mere human pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his judgment, when his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. And then here's the key phrase. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble And distress for every human being who does evil. You who judge other people? Yeah, guess what? You're doing the very same things. The things that you're judging other people are, are the things that we ourselves do. So the truth of this is this. Why do we act and behave in the way that we do Why do we continually mar and scar and deface the image of ourselves? Why is it that we continually defame and make sacrilege out of other people when we treat them poorly, when we demean them, when we don't love them? Why is that? It's because ultimately we have a broken image of God. That which we treat other people is a reflection of how we see ourselves, of how we see the image of God in us. And if we see God as judgmental, condemning, guy up there with a thunderbolt ready to strike you down, that's going to be reflected in how you treat other people and their faith journey and their faith walk. If you see God kind of as, uh, oh, he doesn't care and he's a little bit apathetic, that will affect how you see justice in this world. If you see God as somebody who favors the holy and disfavors the unholy, you will most likely favor the holy and not favor the unholy. However you see that. We have a broken image of God. And if there is anything in your life that is causing more and more brokenness, most likely we can trace it right back to a broken image. So not only do we have a broken image, we are a broken image. We are a broken image. (laughs) 
These are just some questions to ask. And when we find the answers to those questions, when we discover what's going on there, if we just take a beat and recognize that might be a reflection of how we see how God sees us. I I work with kids, and for those of you who work with kids, we all know parents that live out, that treat their children in a certain way. Not because they're trying to raise their children, it's because it's reflecting of, I didn't have an opportunity to do this when I was a kid, so I want you to do this. It's a reflection of what's going on inside here. Leaders who avoid difficult circumstances and challenges are afraid of losing their positions of power. They're afraid of giving up their reputation. They're afraid of losing credibility. And if you're constantly policing the world, that's probably because you don't feel like you add up or you live up to the standards. We have a broken image. Now, that's not the end of the story. There's wonderful things. Yay! Oh, jeez. Don't end the sermon there. The word Selim, T-Z, and I, just, I guess I decided to change it, uh, is translated into the word icon in Greek. So we will see this phrase, icon, throughout the New Testament. Because throughout the New Testament, and actually throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, <coughs> what God's work of redemption is doing is healing and repairing and putting back together again the broken image that you have. And so one of the most, one, one of the reasons why I love Jesus. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. The Son is the, guess what word? Image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image, the icon of its creator. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, going back a couple pages here. Where Paul is making an argument and a teaching around the resurrection of Jesus. And just, verse 49, and just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so we bear the image of of the heavenly man. I love that phrase. Just as we have borne the image of earthly man, the brokenness, the marred image, so we now also bear the image of the heavenly man of Jesus. In other words, 
the reason why we follow Jesus and the reason why this is so stinking important is because as you conform your life more and more to the person of who Jesus is, who is himself the image, the tselem, the icon, the physical representation of who God is, as you conform your life to him, that heals the broken image that is inside of you. And as you heal the broken image inside of you, that begins to heal all the relationships that you have with each other. So the question is once again, what is it that you see when you look in the mirror? What do you see? Do you see a God who loves you tremendously without any reservation? Do you see a God who has created you, crafted you, put you together every single nook and cranny, every single zit that you see in that mirror? Do you, when you look in the mirror, what do you see? Do you see that image? This week, I didn't have time to do it um, this last week, but this week I'm going to try to get into your boxes a couple words and phrases that are written backwards. This is actually a brand name. Some of you will recognize this. And the hope and the goal is for you to take that and put it up to the mirror. And as you look into the mirror, I would love for you to read this word, loved. And then begin to live out of that image, not live out of the broken image. I want to read a couple things from Brendan Manning's book in closing. Because he sums this up in a wonderful way. On a blustery October night in a church outside Minneapolis, several hundred believers had gathered for a three-day seminar. I began with a one-hour presentation on the gospel of grace and the reality of salvation. Using scripture, story, symbolism, and personal experience, I focused on the total sufficiency of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. The service ended with a song and a prayer. Leaving the church by a side door, the pastor turned to his associate and fumed. (laughs) That airhead didn't say one thing about what we have to do to earn our salvation. Brendan Manning writes, something is radically wrong. The bending of the mind by the powers of this world has twisted the gospel of grace into a religious bondage and distorted the image of God into an eternal, small-minded bookkeeper. The Christian community resembles a Wall Street exchange of works wherein the elite are honored and the ordinary ignored. Love is stifled, freedom shackled, and self-righteousness fastened. The institutional church has become a wounder of the healers rather than the healer of the wounded. Put bluntly, the American church today accepts grace in theory but denies it in practice. We say we believe that the fundamental structure of reality is grace, not works, but our lives refute the truth. By and large, the gospel of grace is neither proclaimed, understood, nor lived. And too many Christians, I love this phrase, too many Christians are living in the house of fear and not in the house of love. So my hope and my prayer for each and every one of us, including myself, is that the image that you see of who you are when you look in the mirror continually becomes more and more healed as you recognize this God of grace and this God of love. And why this is why we live by values. And this is why the reputation of God is so important. How God's repute is viewed in your life radically affects everyone and everything. And so in closing, 
I would like to remind you of the image of who you are. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to me. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. May God's image and your view of God's image of you be healed, restored, and put back together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time and for the church that has gathered here, for the people that are called by your name. I thank you for the amazing insights and wisdom that your word provides for us. God, may we, this evening, this week, this month, and for the rest of our lives, be captivated once again by the grand, brilliant, spiritual, overwhelming, and amazing truth that we are created in your image, that we are your representatives, and that how we see, how we see ourselves as your image. God, may that be healed, restored, redeemed, and put back together again. And we pray this in your name. Amen.